Okay, let's uh, continue in this series that we're in, in Luke. And if you were going to do a message on Luke 5, where would you start? Genesis, Genesis exactly. So, Allah, my, this great tradition with Mike, open up to Genesis chapter 1. Let me read a couple of verses to you. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. But the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. (coughs) So what we're seeing is God is the creator God. God is the one who can create all things, the heaven, the earth, the sea, the dry land. Look down at verse 9. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and he gathered the waters into seas and God saw that it was good. So here we have this creative work of God. Verse 20, God said, let the water swarm with all swarms of living creatures. God called the great sea creatures and every living and moving thing which the water uh, swarmed. So what, is, what do we take away from this? Well, you know, as I was cruising through Mike's library, I found a great book, the Jewish Study Bible. Let me read this to you. To the ancients, the opposite of the created order was something much worse than nothing. It was an active, malevolent force which can best be described chaos. In this verse, chaos is envisioned as a dark, undifferentiated mass of water. In the ancient Near East, however, to say that a deity had subdued chaos is to give him the highest praise. So as we're trying to get into the mind of Peter in the New Testament, a fisherman, a sailor, we first need to get into our heads, what's going on in the ancient Near East regarding water and who rules the water? And Genesis 1 plainly says, hey, God's the creator God. He created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land, and the fish in the oceans as well. Turn to Genesis 6. We'll see another one of these. So this is the famous classic flood story. You got Mr. Noah, you got Mrs. Noah, you got their three kids and their daughters, uh, daughters-in-law. Verse 11 says, the earth was ruined in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. So what does God do? Verse 17, I'm about to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under the sky all the living creatures that have the breath of life in them. What do you think that dinner table was like when Mr. Noah comes home and says, Hey, um, Mrs. Noah, guess what? I I had a conversation today. Good. Who were you talking with? Oh, I was talking with God. Interesting. And what's he going to do? Oh, he's going to destroy the world with a flood, and he wants us to build an ark for the eight of us to be saved physically through it. What? What have you been smoking or drinking, Mr. Noah? What is this about? What the story is about is God is more powerful than the earth. He is above and can judge. He can use water to bring that judgment. This is vital because this is going into the head of somebody in the ancient Near East. Okay, another one. Turn to Exodus 14. So this is the uh, flight of Israel out of Egypt. 
They've been captive for 400 years through all these plagues. Pharaoh releases them. And now Pharaoh says, ah, bummer, I made a mistake. I didn't, shouldn't have released them. So you got this million to two to three million people who are out in the desert, and they come right up to the edge of the Red Sea, and the Egyptians are just licking their chops saying, we got them. And Mr. and Mrs. Israelite are thinking, uh, the Egyptians are that way. The Red Sea is this way. What's going to happen? So Exodus 14, verse 23, the Egyptians chased them and followed them into the middle of the sea. All the horses of Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Because God had said to Moses, I will divide the waters and my people the nation of Israel, will walk through the waters and the Egyptians will be judged in the waters because I am over the water. I am stronger than the water. I am the God who created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land, and all the fish in them. Verse 24, In the morning which the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army through the pillar of fire and the cloud, he threw the Egyptian army into a panic. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's flee from Israel, for the Lord fights for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Extend your hand toward the sea, so the waters may flow back on the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And don't you think, on the other side of that sea, as people are looking and saying, We came through this thing on dry ground. It's now water. There used to be an Egyptian army. It's in there somewhere. And God has rescued us and delivered us. He is the one who is stronger than the waters. Turn with me one more. Joshua chapter 3. We see another story. So Israel, because of their disobedience after the Red Sea, they've been circling in a holding pattern at LAX for 40 years. And finally, they get ready to land, right? But to do that, they come up against the Jordan River. At flood stage, you ever seen a river at flood stage? This is not to be messed with. So torrential rains are rushing down, and there's no enemy behind them, but it's like, how are we going to go from here, the Sinai Desert, to the promised land? And this is what God promises. When the ones carrying the ark, Joshua 3.15, carrying the ark, reached the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark touched the surface of the water. The Jordan is at flood stage during harvest time. The water coming downstream toward them stopped flowing. The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. All Israel crossed over the dry ground until the nation was on the other side. Now, can you imagine being one of those priests carrying this Ark between two or more of them? And your command is to do this. You've got flood river ahead of you. Your command, by faith, fear not and do this, because God has promised it, but you have to put your toe in the water first. God said, I'm not stopping the water until you take action. You've got to put your toe right there. They put their toe right there, and the waters stop. They They walk through, and again, Mr. and Mrs. Israelite at dinner table that night are like, we went through the waters. God is stronger than floodwaters. He is stronger than the Red Sea. He is stronger than the oceans because he created them all in Genesis 1. Everything belongs to God. 
Turn with me to Jonah. It's looking pretty good so far, isn't it? Like, yeah, I want to be on that team. That's a good team. Well, when God tells you to do something and you don't do it, he can turn those waters against you too. So Jonah chapter 1, this is the story of the disobedient prophet. The Lord said to Jonah, son of Amittai, go immediately to Nineveh. Instead, Jonah immediately headed off to Tarshish to escape from the commission of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind on the sea. Such a violent tempest arose on the sea that the ship was threatened to break up. The sailors were so afraid that each cried out to his own God, and they flung the ship's cargo overboard to make the ship lighter. So God says, go that way. Go to Nineveh. God says, uh, Jonah says, you know, that's a really interesting idea, God. Um, I'm not even going to negotiate with you on this one. I'm going to just go the other way. Because I know what you'll do if I go to Nineveh. You will actually bring them a story where they can come to know you personally. Because that's the kind of God you are. And these Ninevites, they are dogs. They do not deserve it. They skin people alive. They flay them. They are not worthy of being saved. So I'm going to just take matters into my own hand, rent a boat, and go the other direction. So Mr. Jonah goes down into the hold, small, tight, cramped hold. By the way, I have a great picture. Uh, This is not Jonah's boat. (laughs) It's a small wooden thing. He goes down into the hold and um, smelly. I mean, you can just imagine, you know, they have to pump the bilge, dank, moldy, and he falls asleep. And God says, hey, I'm not content with this picture. Because I wanted my prophet to go to Nineveh. So God brings up this huge storm. Now we know the storm is just cataclysmic because sailors value two things. Their lives, because that's what they have, and their cargo, because that's how they're going to get paid. Last time I checked, no cargo, no payment. And so the storm is so big, they are throwing stuff over left and right to make the ship float. Now, when I was young, my grandparents took me on a cruise. My parents tagged along. It was great. Gulf of Alaska. But it was in the days when cruise ships were much smaller. And so here we had 20 to 40-foot waves in the Gulf of Alaska for two days. It was so bad, the captain got seasick. And a 20-foot wave, I mean, it is tossing this metal boat around. You know, it's, what, a couple hundred yards, uh, feet long? And it's, it's like a toothpick going back and forth for two days as we cross the Gulf of Alaska. These guys are in this tiny thing of a boat, barely staying alive. And they're saying like, hey, gods, because they're polytheists. Gods, why are you doing this to us? Finally, they think, what kind of idiot is in the hold sleeping? Um, maybe like he's the cause of all this. So we read in verse 9. They go down, they get Jonah up, and they say, Hey, bud, who are you? And he says, verse 9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You get the little humor going on here? Jonah's boasting of who God is, but he's not saying to him very easily, Oh, yeah, and I'm the reason for this storm. Because of my disobedience is the reason this storm is here. But I'm going to be a little proud and arrogant with you and tell you how great my God is. A little humor. 
11, because the storm was growing worse and worse, they said to him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And he said to them, pick me up. Throw me into the sea to make it quiet down. Because I know it's my fault you're in this severe storm. Instead, they tried to row back to land, but they were not able to do so because the storm kept getting worse and worse. Now, how does the storm get worse and worse when they've already jettisoned their cargo? So we go from like a worst-case scenario to a double worst-case scenario for these guys. So they cried out to the Lord, they being the sailors. And notice who the sailors are calling upon. The sailors are calling upon the God of Israel because they know what Jonah is saying is true. Jonah is not a fisher of men, as we're going to look at it a little bit. Jonah's soon going to become fish bait for this great fish. And Jonah is not spreading the good news of what the God of Israel is doing, but these sailors pick up on it anyhow. And they say, oh, please, Lord, don't let us die on account of this man. Don't hold us guilty of shedding innocent blood. And then verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly. In other words, they turned away from their gods that they realized did not create the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. And their gods that did not um, create or sustain the storm. And they realized this God of the Hebrews, he is the one who is doing it. And they earnestly vowed to offer lavish sacrifices to the Lord. Because they were afraid of a picture like this one, of the same ship we saw earlier, that had sunk off Italy. What was the name of that? The Contra Costa. Now, I could have shown you one from the Korean ferry. Couldn't do that. It's just too ripe of a story. I could have shown you one of the tsunami from 2004, 2005. Couldn't do that. Too gruesome. The point is, today, in our world, we still have this love-hate relationship going with the sea. Even though we don't travel the oceans in little boats, we understand the sea is a powerful thing. And the God that we're looking at today is more powerful than that powerful sea because he created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and the fish in the sea. You are now entering, not the twilight zone, you are now entering the mind of Peter, the sailor. Because this was his mind in the early New Testament period. He's thinking and he's saying, whoa, the sea is mine because I'm a sailor. I know the Sea of Galilee. Now you're beginning to understand the life of Peter. In that way, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Verse 1, now Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. The crowd was pressing around him to hear the word of God. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put a little way from the shore. Then Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, really? We've worked hard all night and caught nothing, nada, zil, zip. But at your word, I will lower the nets. Now, it's an interesting little story here, and I'm going to bet you're like me. 
you would want to rush by this pretty quickly because it doesn't resonate easily with us, unless you're a fisherman. If you're a fisherman, you're going to get into this story. I'm not. So Jesus was standing by the lake, called the Lake of Gennesaret. It's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd was pressing around him. I don't think it's the crowd that's pressing around him that forces Jesus into the boats. Jesus wanted to get into the boat. I mean, really, when the crowd's pressing around him, he can, you know, somehow get the crowd away. But he wanted to be in one of these two boats, specifically the one where Peter was. Now, Jesus and Peter aren't unacquainted. You can go back about 10 verses into chapter 4, oh, I think it's 38, and you see that Peter's mother-in-law was healed of a fever. So when I've been reading this verse, I, I don't know, I just miss some things. And it takes me a long time sometimes to get some little things. What Jesus did was he got in and he sat down in the boat. Then, when he's in the boat, he then calls Peter, who apparently was still on the land, hey, row me out a little bit so I can address the crowds. It's a minor thing, but it shows how easy it is to miss things in the Bible. Jesus speaks not standing here, but seated, just like this. And who is seated to him, perhaps on the gunnels right next to him? Who's seated there? Peter. Peter's in the boat. So Peter's getting this wonderful opportunity to hear this carpenter-turned-rabbi, because Jesus has just started his ministry. He hasn't been in this very long. So Peter's listening, and Peter, I think, as he's listening to Jesus, just has kind of this funny feeling, like he doesn't teach like anyone I've heard before. And he healed my mother-in-law. What is going on here? This is a strange setup in Peter's mind. And more than that, this is Peter's home turf, right? It's like Jesus going to your place of work or your home and interacting you with you as an equal because he is on Peter's turf. And more than that, he tells him what to do. In verse 4, put out into the deep. Oh, so the carpenter turned rabbi is now a sailor, now a fisherman. Oh, so Jesus, now you're an expert on fish. Well, you know, in the ancient Near East, people are very polite, and there's a combination of respect for this amazing teacher who's just listened to 30 minutes, an hour, we don't know. He's just listened to this amazing message, because you read everywhere in the New Testament when Jesus teaches. He turns the whole world upside down. This incredible communicator and sharing that the world order is not what you think it is. It's not just fear God, but it's fear God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's fear God and love your enemy as yourself. He turns the whole world upside down. This is what Peter's been exposed to. And now this guy has the audacity to tell him to go into the deep water and to cast these nets, which are huge nets, take three, four guys to cast, and they, they circle around the fish. It's not line fishing. This is net fishing. This guy knows how to fish. But out of deference to the teacher, out of deference to his guest, and being a guest in the Near East is hugely important, even today, tremendous place of respect. Okay, I'm going to do it. Even though my friends on the shore are probably going to make fun of me that I'm doing this. You know, just like the friends of Mr. and Mrs. Noah made fun of them for building this enormous ark. Just like the Egyptian army 
was going to make fun of Israel walking through the water. Hmm. Any bells, whistles going off in your head like they were in Peter's? Something is going on here. So, verse 6, when they had done this, they caught so many fish, their nets started to tear. Verse 7, so they motioned to their partners in the other boat, Woo, come on, this is the big haul. And they came and filled both boats, and they were about ready to sink. Now, the word there for tear is not like a normal, you know, my, my pants seam is beginning to tear, and you hear this little... This is a very violent word. This means there is something of great turmoil going on in those nets. And these nets are bulging, huge nets, bulging to the place where the fish are like roiling out of the water. And so they haul these things up. They call the other boats. And and the beauty of this story is Jesus and Peter are in the boat. And they're hauling the fish on the boat. And the boats keep getting lower and lower and lower. And what goes from what is miraculously wonderful could have turned into tragedy in deep water in any second, right? Peter's seen his boats go lower and lower, and he's thinking, I'm in the deep. These boats go down. We're never getting them back. The boats are gone. The fish are gone. We might be able to swim back to shore. And they kept getting lower, and they almost sink. Problem is, I'm not a fisherman. I really don't understand this story. It doesn't look like much of a miracle to me. But if you were there, they would have understood these nuances in this Old Testament perspective of God as the creator of the heaven and the earth, the sea and the dry land, the creator of the fish, that, you know, is harder for me to get into. But look at Peter's response. He clearly understands that something supernaturally amazing is going on here. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord. It's a polite command. Go away from me, Lord, please, for I'm a sinful man. For Peter and all who were with him were astonished at the cash of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's business partners. Isn't that what it's like for you when something amazing happens in your life and you know that God is doing it? Maybe you scored just a supernatural real estate deal. Maybe you were blessed at work with this bonus that was just so big you knew that God was in it. Maybe it's this thing of terror that's come into your life. Terrible relationship. Terrible thing in your life. Could be a cancer. Could be a divorce. Could be a really nasty relationship. And you're like, hey, God, no way, please. I don't want to be around you at all, because you're going to do something here, and I am not worthy of it. Well, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he doesn't even answer the question. He then says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And we have a similar response here. Peter says, God, you're doing a miracle right in front of me. It's on my home turf in the deepest part here of the Sea of Galilee, I'm not worthy of your presence. And Jesus doesn't give a big sermon. Look at his answer. It's so simple. It's so direct. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Me phobou in Greek. It's where we get the word phobos, phobia, you know, arachnophobia, fear of spiders, 
photophobia, fear of light, theophobia, fear of God, (laughs) phobophobia, fear of fears. He says, don't be afraid. You're with me. From now on, you will be catching people. And Jesus does a great little play on words because the first time talking about a catch was all talking about catching fish. This word for catch is about catching like a live bird in a net. Catching fish is about catching fish, hauling up them up on your boat until they die. This word for catch is catching something alive. And Jesus has just demonstrated it. He has just caught his first three disciples, Peter, James, and John, with this miracle. And he says to Peter, don't worry about it. Oh, we're going to deal with some stuff along the way. And you're going to see the highs and the lows of Peter's life. He's going to be the one who declares Jesus to be the Christ. And the next thing he says, Jesus says to him a little later, just get behind me, Satan. We see these wonderful admissions, and then he denies Jesus three times. So following Jesus is not about getting your act all cleaned up first. And you think, man, you don't know where I was last night. Well, I I might be able to guess. Might have been a great party, and you might have had too much, or smoked too much, or drank too much, or you might be in a relationship with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You might have a really nasty relationship in your marriage going on. Or you might be living with somebody for 10 years and say, look, the minute I can get my act cleaned up, then I'll be a follower of Jesus. I can't come to Jesus like this. Well, the problem is that's not what Jesus says. He just says, come, follow me, Peter. Big, tall, strong, bronzed, fisherman, leader, thoroughly messed up. <laughs> just come on, come follow me. Because that's what it's about. And that's the call that Jesus gives to everyone of us here, the folks watching. You know, following's not an easy thing always. It takes a step. For me, I'm not a fisherman. I'm not a sailor, even though I grew up near the beach. I'm a scuba diver. Little photo, fun photo of me. I'm on the right here in this photo going up. Love to scuba dive. And that's from one of my first dives. And in this very dive, the dive master was having us walk off of the beach, not through the shore, but off of a seawall. So we walked about 50 feet into the sea on this seawall, and the waves were coming in pretty good. And the dive master, she said, now do what I do. In other words, follow me. Because from the top of the seawall to the top of the waves was about a seven-foot drop. But if you timed it wrong, and as the waves were coming in, it would be a 12-foot drop. That's quite a difference. And then she said, put your hand on on your mask and on your regulator and do a giant stride and follow me in. And I'm going like, I'm learning how to scuba dive again, and let's just go in off the beach. She said, no, 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 we're we're going this way, off the seawall. So she went in, a couple other people went in, my turn. I mean, you're all decked out, right? And you got the swim fins on, and so it's like you go right up there, you put, you hold your mask, you hold your respirator, one wave goes by, the next wave is like, it's my turn. They're waiting behind me, and I do a giant stride and go in, because it's not about me anymore. It's about following the dive master, and that's what I did. 
The dive master said something else really interesting that day. She said, don't touch the marine life. So we're cruising around, and we saw this six-foot-long moray eel, wonderfully green. There's a picture of it. And some of these crazy people on their first dive, they were like, let's go touch the moray eel. Not a good idea. And she swam over quickly and grabbed their finger back because morays sit there like this with razor-sharp teeth, and they're really blind, and they just wait for a little fish to come along like this about three inches away, and then they reach out really far, grab it, and they... They latch onto it with razor-sharp teeth. You see, you've got to listen to the dive master. You have to follow. And following is not always easy, but that's what we're called to do. So for me, I had some friends about 10 years ago who asked me to launch, start, inaugurate a doctor of ministry program for about 30 students in India. And I said, uh, I'm not an academic. And they said, well, just do what you're teaching part-time at Dallas Seminary. And I said, okay, I'll do it, but I'm going to make a 10-year commitment to come to teach for three weeks a year, and then I'm going to turn it over to a national, if God would be so good, by the seventh year. And the program grew, and the students, they're wonderful. But the third year, I got sick in country again. Something about me and India doesn't always go together well. And so I boarded the airplane. Now, coming back from India is two 12-hour flights. From 12 hours from Bangalore to London, 12 from London back to the States. And for the first time in my life, and I had flown 2 million miles on American Airlines to that date, I got claustrophobic. And it was painful. So I got back, and it wasn't, I, I got over it. So I thought, but then comes the next December when I'm getting ready to go again, and I'm like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to get on another airplane. And to this date, when I am getting ready to go on an airplane, I don't want to go because my head goes back there. But here's why I do it. The joy of being a fisherman, the joy of seeing students from all over India They come from the north of India. It takes five days by train one way to come to class. From the next country over, Myanmar, believe it or not, it can take 21 days one way to come to class. The shortest students come 12 hours overnight on bus. And then the joy of their ministries and helping them grow as pastors and as educators. And then I get to cast this net with international scholars. And so we've had guys like a... Gene Getz and a Daryl Bach and a Dan Wallace. And I was talking to this guy named Wayne Grudem on Friday. And he said, David, I'm, only, I'm coming because of this great program. But also, I looked through the photos that you sent. And I saw the joy and the smiles in those Indian students. And essentially he's saying, those are the kind of people I want to fish in. Those are the kind of people I want to build in. And I'm sure when I get ready to go on that airplane in December... It's going to be more than a challenge for me because it's been that way for five years now. But I'm going to follow, and I'm going to fear not because this is what Jesus said. Fear not, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, in your own life, you know this to be true. 
Whether you're a Christ follower or not, you know that Jesus is going to get up close and personal and mess with your life. Things are going well. He may just say, great, I'm going to make it ten times better. I'm going to give you so much success, you can't even handle it. And then you're going to have to understand that I am the only one. The creator of heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, I'm in control of it all. He could make your life, which is going along okay, and he could bring such adversity in your life, that that's the way that he's going to reach you. Because what he did was he reached Peter. And he did it by reaching Peter in his own location. You know, it's the difference between major surgery and minor surgery. So uh, Peter's mom, mother-in-law gets healed. Okay, minor surgery is what happens to you. Major surgery is surgery that happens to me. God's going to do that in your life. He's going to do all sorts of events. And he's calling out to you. Follow me. Follow me now. Don't wait. Don't even try and get your life cleaned up to follow him. He wants you to follow him first. That's the call. So as we looked in in Luke 5, there's a lot of stuff going on. This whole theme of water that pervades the Old Testament is all in Peter's head. And he suddenly acknowledges that this carpenter-turned-rabbi-turned-kind-of-fisherman-sailor all of a sudden is much more than that in his boat. He gets glimpses of Genesis 1 and Genesis 6 and Exodus and Joshua and Jonah all going on because this is a guy who has so much more in his teaching and in his power as creator of all things. Certainly, he is much more than that carpenter. Will you pray with me? Father, we look at Jesus... And it's more than we can take in. It doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes because he just does such amazing things with people that resonate so deeply. And it's such a rich history for us to understand, to get our heads around. And, and then all we want to do is just say with Peter, uh, I'd rather not. But Father, you and your Son and your Spirit are just relentless. You keep knocking. You keep pestering. You keep talking to us to get our attention, my attention, on the right things. To give me the ability to do stuff that's hard and to call me and take me to a place that I would rather not be, but you would want me to be because it's a great catch of fish. Father, there are many in this room who are asking, seeking, and knocking, I'd ask that you would prompt in their hearts to respond and to follow Christ first. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.